The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Feetendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Tate Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my to the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome on board everybody. Welcome on board the big red bus that we call and have come to know as the Mojo Radio Show. We're heading due north as usual and I know I say it every week but I've got to say this week is an absolute cracker. This little show is designed to help you get your mojo working in or out of work. If not you, then surely somebody you know around you who just needs a little something-something to get them going. And I think this show is very profound, not just for you, but for your whole family and those people that you love. This is going to be a doozy. Driving the bus with the captain's cap on, Captain Stubing, as he's known. Robbo, uh, how are you today? I'm really well, thanks. Just do me a favour, wind down your window and tell AP to duck. He's up on the roof of the bus <laughs> roof surfing and there's a few bridges coming up. <laughs> no, what, is it? what was that show? Um... Priscilla. Oh, Priscilla <laughs> Queen of the Desert. <laughs> yeah, that about oh, that about wraps it up. Gone. Yeah, that's right. Have you, yeah. have you got a visual, folks? It's the, Steve, <laughs> the Stevie Nicks. He's got this. You got the black chiffon and the six-inch platforms. Yeah, except he's not singing. He's going new from L'Oreal. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, some things you cannot unsee Absolutely. in a pair of budgie smugglers. Uh, navigating as always, our automated studio assistant. Good morning, Lola. Hello, boys. Lola, do you have a Priscilla-esque song you could play (laughs) for the big red bus with our icon, Windsurfing the Roof? Yep, that sounds about right. All right, to kick us off, it's Robbo's Remarkable Fact. What do you got? Robbo's Remarkable Facts. About time. Let's go. I've got Robbo's Remarkable Facts this morning. Two quick ones. Did you know back in the day, back in the 1800s, colonial Mer- Americans would drink alcohol pretty much 24 hours a day? And I'm not kidding you. And, do you <laughs> and know- they were big fans of the Mojo Radio Show, right? <laughs> they would drink, they would drink uh, what was described as ale, hard cider or whiskey with almost every meal because of concerns about fresh water causing disease in the alcohol. Alcohol would obviously clean the um, clean the water of bacteria. So there you go. Well, here's one a for nice you. One. A quick remarkable fact. Do you know why Dosecchi, Corona, Modelo, 
uh, have a piece of lime or lemon in the top? No, because it tastes good. No, it's to it's to provide an antiseptic because in Mexico, obviously, where the sanitary conditions are not great and where you buy your Corona sometimes can be pretty dodgy. Mm. They put a piece of lime in the top and that was what they were rubber on the top to clean the top, which is put, what you're putting in your mouth. So initially yeah. that's why it is and someone ended up pushing it in. Yeah, and went, and that's hey, what that happened. So there wow. was a reason for it. Okay, what's your second you fact? Second one, science fiction. It's a great genre. We all love it. The genre science fiction was actually created back in 1816 by a teenager, a teenage girl, and she wrote Frankenstein. And she was inspired to write that after studying the work of a scientist called Giovanni Aldini, who'd been conducting experiments using electricity on the cadavers of dead frogs, but was given permission to conduct those experiments on the bodies of some executed prisoners. And during one of those experiments the dead prisoner actually opened his left eye and that was in the newspaper and that inspired her to write Frankenstein, thus creating a whole new genre, science fiction. Now, I've got a, an interesting one for you, which is maybe is somewhat remarkable. What does an electric car sound like? Uh, an electric motor? No. See, that's the thing. It makes no noise at all. And so the danger we have is that you have an electric car and you can't hear them because when an electric car starts, there is no noise. And so it's a pedestrian hazard. Right. So here's what's of interest to you. Mm. Do you know Hans Zimmer? Yes, I do. Who is a film score composer. Producer, Who did Hollywood blockbusters like The Lion King and Inception, blah, blah, blah. He is now working for BMW to design the sound of a BMW electric vehicle. Wow. So Zimmer and Renzo Vitali, an acoustic engineer and sound designer, sound familiar, he, they're working on a project that's called the BMW Iconic Sounds Electric Sound Brand. <laughs> so Jesus. I thought that'd be fascinating for you because this yeah. is where you go back to Ivor Davies, a, a famous... Australian singer, songwriter, rock and roll star who experiments with sounds. But this is now a new category because people say, well, once one of these new technologies introduced, we'll lose all the jobs. But what they don't talk about is that when a new technology is introduced, it creates a whole lot of new jobs. Absolutely. So for a sound designer is getting ahead of the curve, you read this and go, there is such a thing as a BMW Iconic Sounds Electric Sound brand and if someone like Hans Zimmer is being brought uh. in to do it, what's the next opportunity? So yeah. what's the next silence that actually needs something filled in and it's being done for it's called acoustic pedestrian production. So that's a really interesting thing. So I've done some homework. <coughs> Lola, <laughs> if you please. I'm listening. Lola and I have been working on if there was a Sonic for an electric car, mm. the Mojo radio show produced, <laughs> what would it sound like? And Lola and I thought it would sound like this. <laughs> How cool would it be to get the car every morning, hit the button and have that start up? How cool would that be? I, th- I was going to say, I thought you'd been recording the sound of your tractor. <laughs> but wouldn't that just be sick? That is cool. Dope. 
Yeah, that's to get very in your cool. car, hit the button and go, no, 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 no. I'd buy a BMW just for that. Yeah, yeah. wouldn't it be? Imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep, totally. Puts my poor old little Subaru Liberty to shame. All right, let's kickstart this show. Hello, this is Michelle Gibbings. I'm a change leadership and career expert. After chatting to Robbo and Gary, I am sure that career leap is something that they would get a hell of a lot of value out. Get a haircut and get a real job. The Mojo Radio Show. You're pumped for this one, aren't you? You've been looking forward to this for weeks. I don't think we've had a guy as smarter as this on the <laughs> yeah, show for a I, long you're time. You're probably right. Honestly. You're probably right. Our guest this week is Dr. Zach Bush, and he's considered to be one of the most compelling medical minds currently working to improve not only the understanding of the human, but also our environmental health. I've got to say, this conversation will get you rethinking not only how you eat and live, but what it means to be a conscious, engaged consumer, how you shop. Dr. Bush is a pioneer in the science of well-being. He's the founder and director of M Clinic, an integrative medicine centre in Charlottesville, Virginia, and one of the only triple board certified physicians in America, an expert in internal medicine, endocrinology and metabolism. But what separates this guy from all his medical peers is his absolutely deep understanding of the interdependence between macrocosm and microcosm. You can see I didn't go to uni. (laughs) Dr. Bush's brilliance really, really shines and you'll hear it during the interview. And where I'm quite fascinated is his, his pulling apart and understanding subjects like soil degradation and regeneration in the farming practices, but how that makes its way to our dinner table and how that and that relationship between what we're doing to the land, environmental degradation, it then links to chronic disease. And it's absolutely amazing and stunning. And his vision is to provide a more, I guess, integrated and probably holistic approach to physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being to get a really good understanding of who this guy is and what he's doing, there is a beautifully shot, brilliant documentary series, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, and you'll find it on YouTube and Vimeo, called The Farmer's Footprint. And in the words of Lyndon B. Johnson, he said, the best fertiliser for a piece of land is the footprints of its owner. The show is stunning. It's a great honour to have you here today, Dr. Zach Bush. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. I'm so glad to be here with you guys. Just to start us off, Zach, you said on your website, today I remain a work in progress. I am slowly deconstructing my education and reconstructing my understanding through the lens of human experience. Just explain that for us. Yeah, I think, you know, I think anybody who's been on a a career course has experienced uh, a very nonlinear path that's so typical of real life. Um, Nature it turns out really abhors straight lines. And every time we try to create linear paths through life, 
it seems like all nature of things, whether it's relationships or jobs or career career open doors or closed doors, happen to to divert us from those straight paths. And it's unfortunate that that's not taught to us early on, because I think we have this strong belief that if we're not going in a straight line upwards towards some sort of you know, vague concept of success, then we must be failing. And so for me, I, I am in a constant process to realize whether it's at the microscope and, and looking at data uh, coming out of a cell biology experiment or um, sitting with a patient in the clinic and listening to stories that are so can be so incredibly complicated in their level of detail and, and the impact that they have on a patient's life or simply grocery shopping and trying to make informed, intelligent decisions there. You know, all of those different environments are inherently nonlinear because uh, new data is always coming at us. And we, we are increasingly realizing that what's presented to us in the world is a very small portion of the truth that, that lies in the reality around us. And so as I continue to advance through my career in science and clinical experience, I come to realize that the world is much more a complex web rather than any any sort of straight lines or you know delineated left right turns there's this constant branching nature that connects everything back to one another and and so in that sense of deconstruction as you really take down the expectations or the linear belief systems that you've been programmed with you start to get a deep sense of connectivity and you get a deep sense that uh, truth is inherent in the structure of life itself. Whether you're looking at an earthworm, a flower or a human, there is fundamental truths there that uh, can be witnessed even when our understanding of the details of it are somewhat blurred or completely uh, absent. And so I'm starting to get more and more excited about my ability to move into life with an intuitive sense rather than an analytical sense. And so I, I think those are some brush strokes that strike my mind in that detail. The way you look at life, you are looking down the microscope, doing some incredible research, and we'll talk about some of the stats you're presenting in just a second. You then go in and talk to schools and you're talking to students and you said that it's your hope that when you speak to a student, they leave with a plan for the next 30 years. What are they to do when they leave, Zach? What's the message you're giving kids today to say, look, here's the plan, here's what you can do for the next 30 years around life? And one of my favorite things about doing podcasts is I always hear myself quoted back to me and never remember having said these brilliant things. And so um, <laughs> that, that's a really brilliant statement there. But, uh, um, <laughs> the, you know, what strikes me as the answer to that is uh, that, you know, much of my point to these kids, whether they're in junior high, high school, all the way into their college and postgraduate years, is to remind them that every single thing that we've put into motion, whether it's business structures, uh, consumer products, um, you know, lifestyle behaviors, all of these right now at the scale of 7 billion people on the planet are doing nothing but accelerating the, the demise of our planet and the nature that is within it. And so that's a daunting message to humanity and could be a very overwhelming message to kids who are about to embark into lives and careers, except when you're 18, 19 years old, 
there's this brilliant stage that's happening where you assume that everybody older than you is an idiot. And it's not at all surprising that the people that came before you screwed up everything and that it's up to you to make everything right. And so by the nature of being 18, 19, 20 years old, it's actually a perfect audience to hear, look, we've screwed it all up. We've got it all ass backwards. It's up to your generation now to look for the, for the pattern of everything over the next 30 years that would reverse not just the last 30 years of destructive behavior, but the, the last 180,000 years of human history in which in even back to the farthest record of human homo sapiens touching land, we destroy animals around us at an alarming amount. We, we extinct the largest animals. Anything larger than us go extinct within a few years of homo sapiens showing up is our general trend. And so we have to completely rethink the human experience at a very deep level if we're to survive as a species the next century here. And so the mandate for these next 30 years is for these kids to not look to human behavior, human products, human actions and patterns and, and programming for business or product development or engineering, but instead to redirect their attention fully to natural systems, to look into the phenomenons of biomimicry, to look into this, this phenomenon where truths at the microscopic level become truths at the, at the large scale with the same scientific structure and the same biologic and physics truths to them. And so that biomimicry is a good example of what is the template for the next 30 years? Well, we needed to redesign everything from our cars to our, our uh, food trays to whatever it is. And so where are we going to find those truths? And it's going to come from nature. And so helping kids at every age, um, including those you know 70 and 80-year-old kids that I get to work with, I, I'm blessed with a peer group now that has is full of you know people in their sixth, seventh, eighth decades of life that are so curious, so inventive so in their moment. And so that childlike aspect of every one of us, I think, can spark when we say all we have in front of us is opportunity. And that opportunity is to do everything different. And this template and the roadmap for that opportunity is already laid out in the structure of nature itself. And so if you're going to go start a business, start to think about how a beehive is created, how the specialization happens within the beehive, and what is the mission of the beehive? The mission of beehive is pure. It's uh, it's to carry on generations and and to populate the planet with responsible uh, harvesting uh, techniques that don't strip nature of her resources, but actually add to those resources through pollination in the in their pursuit of food. And so, how do we start to produce food that actually gives back to the planet more than it takes from the planet? How do we start to build you know business structures that provide education as much as product delivery? That kind of thing. So that's the that's the simple mandate in the end is look to nature for your roadmap and find us a regenerative, transformative map towards a new society. And you just mentioned the word or the, the phrase populate the planet. And I heard you talk with Rich Roll on his podcast, which was an amazing show. And you said one of the most amazing, one of the most alarming stats is that we're actually, this is, this is true, we're actually losing the ability to procreate. And that one in four women in the US right now have fertility issues and one in three men. And it's interesting, I would say, that when you really think about your own 
friend's circle, your own community, how often we hear about couples having a hard time uh, having babies. That stat's alarming. Why aren't we hearing more about this when we talk about the future, Zach? You know, I think part of the reason you don't hear more about it is because the the system at large doesn't have any any understanding of why it's happening and don't have any cohesive understanding of what they would do to fix the problem. And so I think doctors and scientists hesitate to go put out a bunch of bad news that they don't even understand or have solutions to. And so that's kind of the fundamental at the science level um, as we're insecure as scientists and therefore we don't speak up. And on the political level, I think it's similar. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of concerns at the geopolitical level that there's too many humans. And there's a lot of academic circles that feel that same way. And so there's this kind of cognitive dissidence out there in the academic slash political environments that says, is infertility really a problem? Or is that actually finally our solution to the biggest problem that we have in macroeconomics right now, which is maybe too many people on the planet sucking resources out of out of Mother Earth. And so I think those are a couple layers of why you don't hear more about this. But the numbers have been well published and it's pretty stunning. Uh, we've the male sperm counts in all Western nations that have been checked uh, are showing about a 52 to 58 percent decline over the last 30 years. And so we've you know, in that decline, our bell curve now has us around 48 to 49 million sperm per milliliter of semen. And we hit a, a infertility state at around 15 million. And so we had started, you know, 30 years ago with a baseline of 100 million. We're now down to that 48, 49, uh, but in some areas, much lower than that. And to achieve that bell curve median or average there of, of 48, 49, you're seeing some one in three males with that, that sperm count at 15 million or below. And so those, those statistics are fascinating. They're terrifying on one level. Um, but I think that, you know, bizarrely, I think there's those around the planet that are thinking, well, thank God, finally, we're going to stem, stem the scourge of, of rapid human expansion that's been on a, on a very, very steep trajectory since the mid 50s. Um, it really started to pick up speed a couple hundred years ago, but really it's been you know going into its logarithmic growth phase of human human reproduction over the last 50 years. My you know the take on that that I think that you know I think is very obvious when you back up and ask, you know, what would be the humane way to control population growth rather than putting a bunch of toxins into our medicines and into our food and into our water systems that would undermine our fertility. And the obvious thing is that for many empires before us, it's been well demonstrated that the higher the educational level, the fewer the children tend to be had. And so in the end, if people are really truly concerned about the explosion of the population in Africa, China, India, uh, those are our massive populations that are still in, in rapid expansion. China now has frozen theirs, as everybody knows, they're now in a, a population decline. And that largely happened, I believe, out of an explosive middle-class education mission. And so as, as they developed a middle-class, um, you know, it, it impacted their desire to have children. And so they had the, the one-child rule for a while, and that certainly that's already been repealed because they're suddenly alarmed that they may not even 
you know, be able to maintain current populations. Um, and so they've repealed that law. But I think it, they're finding that despite repealing that, young people are not having children in China. And that's because they're more interested in a, a educational or career path than they ever had been before because those opportunities got opened up. And so if we have a population problem, which I think is you know, way up for debate, because frankly, if we just create a sustainable regenerative agricultural system, we'll be able to feed everybody on the planet with quite some ease. There's plenty of resources here for 7 billion people if you manage them with responsible behaviors that are, again, giving back to Mother Earth more than it takes. And so, you know, we may or may not even be able to say that we have a population problem, but clearly as we did, education would be an ironclad methodology for, for curbing uh, those ex- exponential growth curves. And on the end of that, we've got chronic disease. And you said that in the 1960s, in the US, 4% of the whole population had chronic disease. In 2015, it's 46% of children have chronic disease. What did we do to ourselves through that 1990s you talk of, what do we do to ourselves that turns all this disease on, Zach? Yeah, I think it's a, that's the, the critical question, right? So if we, if we don't answer that question, then we, we go extinct within the next you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, depending on the trajectory. And so the, the interesting thing is if you go and look at a CDC website or which Centers of Disease Control here in the United States, or you go to uh, any you know, political campaign, Nobody's asking that question. Nobody's talking about that you know, trajectory of chronic disease. Um, you know, the the reality is, um, it didn't even really come home to me until just about a month ago. You know, I, I lecture on this stuff for years now, and I happened to be invited down to Houston to give a talk down there. And part of that weekend turned into the grounds. Uh, committee, uh, the groundskeepers for MD Anderson Cancer Center and hospital system uh, for University of Texas was um, invited me over. And so chewing around there and for this first time I witnessed MD Anderson's Children's Hospital there at University of Texas. And it's not one massive hospital tower. It's six towers of hospital system. And as you start walking around in there and see child after child pushing their chemotherapy pole around with their bald head and their big smiles and bright blue eyes that are so innocent and unquestioning of the world they're born into. These kids are, you know, have the same enthusiasm and kind of curiosity for life that you would expect in a vibrant, you know, uh, school hallway. And so the children are coming into this world, you know, hammered by disease at such an early stage, three years old, five years old, 10 years old. They've got these leukemias and lymphomas that have never been seen at this. Brain tumors that have never been described in children are now rampant. And so that really brought it home to me that, you know, we're, we're more than willing here in the United States to build multi-trillion dollar, currently at about three and a half trillion dollar a year healthcare system to deliver all these fancy drugs and chemicals to our kids and beyond, but we're not willing to talk about or ask the hard question of how did all these kids get sick suddenly? This wasn't the case 10 years ago, let alone 30 years ago, let alone 1960s. So um, that's you know frustrating on a lot of levels, and I think it's a real call to action for us as consumers. As a consumer, you have the power to start to shift that dialogue 
far faster than any legislator will or any you know corporate board is going to let their company move to answer. So ultimately, you ask the golden question, and the answers come down to the food and the water systems that our children are born into. And fundamental to those food and water systems is this emerging universe that we now call the microbiome. The microbiome is a description of bacteria, fungi, parasites, viruses, and their complex interactions of this vast, vast ecosystem of life. The species diversity in this microbiome it, you know, really defies logic. We've got you know tens of thousands of bacterial species, if not hundreds of thousands. We've got uh, 300,000 species of parasites. We have 5 million species of fungi. We don't even know how many species of viruses, but a, a conservative estimate to how many viruses are on the planet as a total would be somewhere around 10 to the 31, which is a one with 31 zeros after it. These are numbers so vast that you suddenly realize that every breath you take, every every step you take, every food you, you eat is covered and filled with microbiome. And we are nowhere near a, what we would think of as a sterile experience as humans. In fact, the more sterile we make ourselves, the faster we die. And so this is really at the crux of your question of what did we do to create this sudden burden of disease in children and adults simultaneously? And the answer has to do with collapsing the fabric of biology, which is the carbon molecules or the, the compost, if you will, that is made by the microbiome that goes on to provide the nutrients, the building blocks for life in utero as a fetus forms, the complex amino acid systems that would become the protein structures of a body, uh, the, the critical minerals that would be at the center of every functional enzyme in that human body, the communication between the cells that are created by the little microbes called mitochondria that live inside of your cells. All of these you know, diverse species of life are fundamental to our survival and our development, and we're undermining that world with antibiotic and chemical exposure. If I just camp there for a second, Zach, and I want to take you back to what you described as the most important moment of singularity in your career. When you looked at a diabetic ulcer and you said in your mind, your hypothesis was there was no differentiation between a diabetic ulcer and cancer. Is it still your belief today that by rebuilding or replacing the microbiome in our bodies at the cellular level, we could actually, if not cure cancer, stop cancer? Yeah, there's no question in my mind. I mean, every day the data gets more and more powerful, not just from our laboratories, but from universities all over the world. Um, it's becoming so obvious that uh, the fundamental information that's produced in a human body to prevent disease is coming from these microbes, these tiny little organisms that begin outside your body, the bacteria, the fungi that you breathe, that you touch, that you uh, swallow, that you, know, you consume, you touch it and it turns into skin flora, which ultimately can you know, swap information with the flora in your mouth and in your sinuses, in your gut and, and beyond and into the very tissues. And we now realize that breast tissue has a healthy microbiome and bacteria in there taking care of those cells. Uh, and disruption of that microbiome leads to breast cancer. And so there's this you know, increasing awareness that 
cancer is not a disease at all. Uh, we were, I was taught, you know, back when I was developing chemotherapy that cancer is a very complicated genetic disorder in which, uh, you know, 20,000 or 25,000 unrepaired injuries in the DNA leads to cancer. And so we have this very DNA-based, genetically-based mindset, and that remains in the industry, only to find out that in the end, that you know, if that were the case, then we would have to see very stable rates of cancer in the, the greater environment. A nuclear event that causes a massive radiation injury to the, the group or the population, something like Chernobyl. Okay, we can, we can wrap our heads around how that could create a bit of a cancer epidemic in that population. But to see a, a non-radioactive, you know, non-radiation event completely reverse the cancer maps across the United States to create this huge new epicenter of disease in our South, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Ohio, and the whole Midwest, up into you know Tennessee, Kentucky. This whole region now carries the highest rates of chronic disease of uh, many types, including cancer. And the map had never looked like that in the United States. Previous to 1994, uh, that mapped it had always shown that the dominant areas of cancer were primarily in the Northeast and, and a couple cancers such as prostate cancer dominant in the Northwest, but never in the South. And then suddenly between 1994 and 2007, in that short 13-year period, we see this massive explosion of cancer across the whole country, except it doesn't follow the normal pattern. Suddenly we have this extreme reversal where the highest rates are now in the Deep South. When you take the antibiotic exposure uh, patterns state by state by in the way in which as doctors we prescribe antibiotics, you find out that the number of antibiotics we prescribe per children, child, woman, and, and adult male uh, per year correlates perfectly with their risk of dying of cancer. Another way of saying that is the more prescriptions of antibiotics we give in a clinic, the more cancer death we will see follow that in the, in the short years afterwards. And so we continue to show at the population level this huge impact or correlation of how antibiotics are undermining our ability to avoid cancer. Of course, the antibiotic prescription for the doctors and the patterns we see there are the tip of the iceberg in volume of chemical antibiotics used on the planet. Some five-fold more antibiotics uh, are used in, in cattle, poultry, and, and swine in the United States than are used uh, direct to human. And so we 5X those antibiotic exposures. And of course, these animals are living on the most fertile areas of the planet and depositing into those soils Roundup and other herbicide, pesticide antibiotics that are clearing in their urine ends up in the soil and they're killing the microbiome through that indirect pathway. And so we're steeping this agricultural environment with this antibiotic type effect of these herbicides. Roundup is a water-soluble toxin, as are a couple of the other organophosphates, which means that as they hit a farm, any rain runoff or irrigation will take those you know, leftover molecules that hadn't gotten absorbed into a plant, will be washed down into the local streams and then rivers and then out ultimately to the ocean. And if we look at the patterns of water drainage in the United States, the largest catchment area of water is the Mississippi River and its uh, many tributaries that begin up near the border of Canada 
and spread over about 80% of uh, our nation's surface area in regard to our agricultural lands. And uh, that therefore collecting all of this antibiotic herbicide into that single water system. And the last 90 miles of that runs from New Orleans up to Baton Rouge or Baton Rouge down in New Orleans. And that 90 miles is now called Cancer Alley. And so again, again, uh, we learn more and more under the microscope of how a loss of bacterial biome and communication can cause cancer. But that theoretical model under the microscope becomes very real and proven out when you start to look at the population statistics of cancer and other infectious diseases in the patterns on which we spray that Roundup and it's consolidated into our water systems. And Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine. But it's almost like let soils be thy medicine because you'd have to think that all we're doing to our soils, and I've heard Joel Salatin talk about you're not a beef farmer, you're not a sheep farmer, you're not a corn farmer, you're a soil farmer. It all starts with the soil. So what's happening here, it sounds like, is that what's coming out of the soil is going into our food, which we're then ingesting. Is that causing or is that suggested to be a causation of this chronic chronic disease? Yeah, I think you know you, you just hit on the very thing that blew my mind back in 2012, which was what if there was medicine in soil? Uh, we were studying some soil health uh, or soil science papers, and I found a molecule that looked a lot like the chemotherapy I used to develop. And that, that was a mind-blowing moment to realize that there was some sort of intelligence in the soil that would be capable of of building, you know, powerful medicine in that dirt, and so that that was the major breakthrough that led to all the science that and you know worldview and our nonprofit and everything else to stem from that one realization. Uh, it's you know going deeper than that, a couple thousand years of of Hippocrates, going deeper than the four thousand years of Chinese medicine that have all been looking to the plant life to realize there might be a deeper intelligence in the soil is awe inspiring and very thrilling as a scientist, and so. As we rolled out our first, you know, versions of our our supplements to find out that they were impacting human cells and their biology far more powerful than my pharmaceutical uh, medications had, was a very amazing realization that you know, in fact, not only is there medicine, it's a deeper, more intelligent, more powerful source of of biology than is the plants themselves. So really fascinating journey into that soil environment, and so absolutely, the medicine is in there. Interestingly, all of that medicine in the soil is made by the bacteria and fungi. And so if you spray a chemical that kills the microbiome, you quickly lose that medicinal foundation within the soil and the communication thereof. Furthermore, you know, we're adding this chemical roundup and, and many others to our food system now. And these undermine the ability of those soil microbes, the bacteria, the fungi, as well as the plants that grow within those soils to actually produce the essential amino acids. These are the building blocks for protein that would go on to build a human body. And so we're spraying our food with chemical that blocks our ability to produce at the soil level or in the human gut, in in our case, the nutrients that are necessary to build complex proteins that would go on to be a human body. When we're missing those building blocks or letters within the alphabet of protein uh, building, we start to develop a, a misspelling problem where we'll start to insert other amino acids that are similar to the ones that we really intended to put into that protein or that enzyme structure. And as we start to misspell these proteins, they start to dysfunction. 
a more the most extreme end of, of misspelling of the proteins will lead to something called amyloid, which is a misfolded human protein. It's built correctly with the amino acids, but it misfolds, and now it's uh, develops this like plaque-like uh, burden on the body that can't be cleared out of the tissue. And so the medicine in the food or is, is starts the medicine in the soil. Without these uh, medicines and building blocks of the amino acids, we, we misspell the proteins. And as we kill the bacteria, we accelerate all that misspelling. We slow down the repair processes in the human body, and we ultimately end up with a a system that's aging more rapidly. And so this is how children are developing these advanced cancers at such young ages, is their biology and its ability to communicate from cell to cell is deteriorating many decades faster than it had been for their parents and maybe you know lifetime faster than it was for their grandparents. And so the speed at which we accumulate the injuries, the speed at which we misfold proteins and misspell them, the speed at which we fail to do cell-cell communication and repair, all of these are resulting in children with diseases of the, what should have been, you know, diseases of, of chronic elderly status. What's quite scary about this, Zach, I've heard you talk about, so Roundup is primarily glyphosate. Glyphosate's produced by a company called Monsanto, and I'm sure anybody who's had any ear to any media for the last year or so will know that Monsanto has found itself in court, and in fact, those people are winning court cases based on the effect of Roundup. But then, if you look at the history of Monsanto as a why why Monsanto existed, what it was famous for, and how that history now presents itself in a product which they're now putting into the soil, which ends up in our food. It kind of is a compelling case to say that there is not just scientific, but there's also a business case to say that this is leading us in the wrong direction. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that uh, you're on to a good technique there is to ask what are the origins or intentions of these companies. Uh, the origins of Monsanto definitely came out of chemical warfare, um, and so we... Uh, were steeped in the South Asia uh, combat of the 1950s and 60s, and along came this chemical company uh, that had some solutions with a new chemical called Agent Orange, and this would be in a, a family of molecules that are known as organophosphates. And that chemical would would then go on to um, burn down, you know, basically, you know, fry the jungles of South Asia, both Vietnam and Cambodia and the like. As we broadcast this this Agent Orange chemical into the jungles to to kill nature, I think it's really the first time that humans, in, in certainly at this scale, turned warfare against nature itself. I can't even really fathom how much biology and and important niche ecologies we destroyed in those years of bombing the jungles of Vietnam and Cambodia. We were destroying vast tracts of green land, turning them into dusty moonscapes, dead soils, dead water systems. Nothing could grow for, for years afterwards. And so we were turning them into moonscapes with all this chemical. And, you know, and so that's the origins of this company. And as, as South Vietnam, you know, wraps up, the war comes to an end. 
suddenly this company is left without its primary marketplace and it quickly realizes there's other reasons to kill plants and a weed killer would be great. But they knew that Asian orange was far too toxic, too carcinogenic uh, to put into the human food or into the human environment. And so they were looking for a a quote-unquote less toxic version of uh, one of the biggest poisons to nature ever. And that less toxic version of the organophosphate would become what's known as Roundup. And that building block or the, the active ingredient in Roundup is this glyphosate molecule, which again is an organophosphate like Agent Orange. This water-soluble molecule disrupts the ability of plants, bacteria, fungi, and the like to make the essential amino acids. And so uh, this chemical company is killing plants by disrupting the normal biologic provision for the building blocks for that plant. So if the plant, uh, the dandelion sitting there that you just sprayed, if it can't make the amino acids necessary to build the enzymes in the plant that help it grow, the enzymes that help it regulate uh, nighttime, daytime life cycles, you suddenly disrupt all of that protein synthesis and enzymatic function and your weed dies very quickly. And so we took chemical warfare straight to our gardens and ultimately to our streetscapes, our soccer fields, our football fields, uh, the you know, rugby, you know, every sport out there played on grass is you know, one of the highest exposure rates that our children get. And so we're spraying our streetscapes, our roadways, our fence lines, our parks, our school, our school yards, all with this, this potent antibiotic that kills life within the soil and any life that would try to grow out of it. And so that journey, uh, I think, is you know interesting to consider its its warfare mentality. But we see that company continue to be bought up by not chemical companies or warfare car companies, but by actually uh, the pharmaceutical companies. And so before the famous now merger of Bayer uh, buying up Monsanto later uh, late last year. We also can look back in, in the history of Bayer uh, or Monsanto further to realize that Pharmaca, which is another, um, or, or I'm sorry, Pharmacia, Pharmacia, the large pharmaceutical company in the United States, owned owned Monsanto throughout the 1990s, and so we have this you know repeated ownership of this chemical company that's spraying our food by the pharmaceutical industry. And so one has to ask, what's what's the impetus of the pharmaceutical industries to keep passing this little company around? And it is a small company compared to, to most pharmaceutical companies. Bayer paid $66 billion to buy Monsanto, which sounds like a lot of money until you realize, well, they control some 85, 90% of the food on the planet in regard to seed processing and the like. You realize, wow, they, they are a far more wealthy company than $66 billion. Uh, why was the number so low? And so these companies are getting passed around seemingly undervalued from pharmaceutical company to pharmaceutical company. And it's an interesting thought that perhaps it's just good business. If you're a pharmaceutical company that makes money treating disease symptoms, then how interesting would it be to have a chemical in your consortium that sprays onto human food that deletes not just the amino acids, but the actual medicines out of the food. The medicines in your food are are largely captured in this large family of molecules that are called alkaloids. And as the alkaloids 
uh, fail to be produced under the weight of Roundup, uh, you lose the medicine quality within the food system. What I was really interested in with this, Zach, to continue that line of thinking, is that you've said that there's now growing evidence that this product, glyphosate, is damaging our gut lining. And there's now a link between glyphosate and gluten intolerance because people can go to Italy and have bread or baked goods and not have the same reaction as they would in the United States. Just run that for us quickly. What are you seeing with this? I mean, how compelling is the link now between glyphosate and gluten intolerance? Yeah, so this has become you know a passion of our laboratory. Dr. John Gilday is uh, the brilliant PhD that that first fashioned these experiments and and developed the, the theory that would ultimately be proved out. Um, so John uh, recognized you know that a lot of the data around uh, glyphosate and Roundup was around it, the the impact of of that chemical to hit tight junctions. Tight junctions are the Velcro that holds our gut lining our blood vessels, our blood-brain barrier, our kidney tubules, all these massive barriers within the body are held together by these Velcro proteins that are called tight junctions. And so having having read that and, and recognized that, uh, Roundup was causing that leaky gut, leaky brain, leaky kidney kind of phenomenon, it was a, a, a relatively exciting next jump to ask, well, we know that gluten seems to be causing some sort of leaky gut phenomenon. Is it possible that there's synergy between this gluten damage to the tight junctions and the Roundup damage? And so that was one of our first experiments we did. And it proved out very quickly that in a dramatic fashion, adding both wheat and gluten to, I'm sorry, gluten and Roundup to the same bite of food, you end up with a very potent injury to the gut lining at those tight junctions. And so there's this, you know, additive, at least, if not synergistic effect between the Roundup and the gluten within the wheat. The mechanisms by which that happens, we're continue to work on the, the tiny details within that, but it's getting pretty obvious that uh, as soon as Roundup hits the gut, there's an upregulation of the receptors, or at least the function of those receptors uh, that are called CXCR3, that, that would then go on to bind the gluten and the gliadin. In other words, if you're eating wheat and there's no Roundup around, the receptors for that gluten will be diminished in the, in the gut and you won't need a reaction. Whereas if you suddenly go back to the United States after your nice European vacation, you eat your first you know, Cinnabon and suddenly you're three or four days in slow recovery from a severe brain, brain fog, fatigue, muscle weakness, poor sex drive, all of this hits you from one piece of wheat that's infused with a bunch of that Roundup chemical. And so that is, you know, in the end, the pattern that we keep seeing over and over again in clinic and at the public health level. So, Zach, I think there's no doubt this show, the work you're doing, your documentary, The Farmer's Footprint, creates a compelling argument, compelling story for us to take action. So I just want to get down to... What do we do about this? And just to set this up, set my question up, you posted a beautiful photo of Temple Grandin on your Instagram account, who is a legend in agriculture for being a thought leader in autism and changing how, and I am a farmer, how we as farmers look at movement and the relationship with our, particularly our cattle. And 
in that photo, it said that the prevalence of autism was one in 5,000 children in 1975, yet in 2016, it was one in 36. So one in 5,000 to one in 36, and the rate has been doubling every three to four years. My question is, based on all you know, and you're seeing it every day, you're seeing actual scientific evidence, you're hearing anecdotal stories. What have you done within your own family, with your own children, you, your partner? How, how, what adjustments have you made in your home? Because you can see this future, but it starts in the home. What have you guys done to counteract this so that you're not one of these stats? Yeah, so, you know, the, if there's one thing that you do, you reconnect your kids to nature. And so uh, one brilliant thing that happened is we had the opportunity as the kids were young to start growing gardens. And um, having the kids crawling around in the garden as soon as they're able to sit still and, and, the, and let alone move around on their own and locomote through the garden, if you set a, a kid down by a tomato plant, it's very likely that the first thing that kid's likely to put in their mouth is a tomato and they may not even chew it. They might spit it out immediately or whatever it is, but they're being exposed to the natural world. They're exposed to a plant uh, that's sitting there and it's really compelling how fast they, they learn and how quickly they start to adapt to information. And that's information that you can't even see as a parent or, or and are also probably bizarrely unaware of because our education is, is so skewed in this area. But when that child sits there in the dirt, number one thing is they're actually touching this massive electrical source called planet Earth, uh, covering just hovering a, a few tiny little microns above the surface of the soil is this massive blanket of electrons that cover the, the surface of the planet. This is how you ground a house or a wiring system. This is how you ground yourself so you so you, so you are more likely to get hit by lightning if you stand up in a field. Um, and so by touching that surface of the earth, you're plugging into this massive electrical source. And that electron fuel comes from a baby sitting on the grass with naked feet and legs and being in it. That is the biggest anti-inflammatory you could possibly give a kid. And so this massive anti-inflammatory property of Mother Earth touching that kid is where health begins. And then that kid is breathing. And with every breath, they're bringing in microbiome into their lungs, sinuses, their upper pharynx of their respiratory or their GI tract. And so they're getting this massive induction and education from the microbiome around them. They're literally learning in real time the cooperative benefit of mother nature and how the intricate species within her work together to support life at all levels. That baby is now being supported by the bacteria, the fungi, the, the molds, the yeast, all of this that are present in that you know organic garden environment with this vibrant soil and plant life around it. And so this is, you know, some of the just very basic first breaststrokes. We could obviously go on for you know, probably 24 hours of just talking about what that baby's going to get after in its first, you know, 20, 30 minutes of sitting in a garden. The amount of sensory input in regard to colors, tastes, smells, textures, uh, the sense of life around them, spiders crawling up the, the, the plant, the earthworms moving beneath their feet. All of this life is literally, I believe, really informing that child on its connection, its, its nurtured state 
the earth literally letting that baby know we're here for you. We're going to support you in every way we know how. And that baby is so in bliss, you know, crawling around in the grass and everything else. And then you fast forward just a, a brief 14 years and that kid never goes outside, sits in front of a screen, typically their iPhone or maybe a computer monitor playing an online shooting game where they're killing other humans or fake creatures or whatever it is. And they haven't gone outside in four days because it's the weekend and, and they just aren't going to leave. And so this is just this profound deprogramming or false programming that we receive as we move past that that infant crawling in the garden space to these automatron, you know, teenagers and then adults who are simply consuming other people's creative thoughts. We do it through movies, we do it through, you know, endless watching of podcasts, we do all kinds of ways we distract ourselves from our own very participation in nature and our the call for a co-creative relationship with that nature. People are so busy reading the news, they'll never do anything that'll make the news. And so, you know, I, I would love to see the day where children have an expectation that they're going to be the next big invention. They're going to have the big breakthrough that's going to teach us how to, you know, drive without poisoning the planet, to grow food without stealing soil, to, to uh, move around Earth without polluting our air systems. And so that, that's an exciting thing to me. If, if we leave kids out there steeped at the moment of birth, they're going to have this deep foundation. So connect that kid back at every age to nature and see the benefits quickly. It's interesting, Zach. We, uh, my wife and I did it through for, for a month, for 30 days. We only ate food that we grew or killed ourselves, as in chickens, beef, or I grew fruit and veggies on the property, on the farm. Or it had to come from within 16 miles of the farm and we had to know the producer. And it was a really interesting exercise because you could look at a cupboard where you knew things were coming from the big uh, big end of town but choose to say no to all that and just be disciplined to eat locally in order to support our farmers who've gone through one of the worst droughts in a century. It's a really challenging thing to do to go down that path. And I'm just wondering for you and your family, knowing this glyphosate story that you're seeing every day and you've got such compelling evidence and stories to back it up, how do you eat in your household? Because I've got to say, it is very challenging to stick to your own food or knowing the producer. It's doable, but it is a bit of a challenge for a lot of us. How do you guys eat knowing about this glyphosate story? Yeah, um, certainly the main method is to eat relatively low on the food chain, right? And so if we look at a food group like uh, fish, for example, uh, which is frequently kind of seen as this quote-unquote health food within the meat industry, um, the, the fish uh, varies a lot from species to species as to their protein structure, the amount of toxin that will accumulate in that fish, etc. The quickest way to figure that out is basically the size of the original fish. And so the largest fish that you probably consume as an American or Western uh, Western consumer is probably the tuna. And so we eat an enormous amount of tuna, poke, bowl, poke bowls all the way to your typical canned tuna fish on the shelf. And that tuna is a massive carnivore. It is a massive, you know, high on the food chain 
uh, guy out there in the ocean. And that high on the food chain animal ends up consolidating an enormous amount of toxin in their tissues because of all of the meat consumption they're doing. And so because they're eating this, this protein-rich you know, food uh, within the water systems, they're absorbing all of the toxins that all of those meat eaters would make. And so as we compound meat eaters on meat eaters on meat eaters, we're eating at this very privileged top of the ecosystem food system chain, but it might ultimately be to our detriment because we can see that the the more you passage, you know, our food system through chemicals, uh, the higher those chemicals get, and the higher that animal is on the food system, like a tuna, you, the more toxin you're going to accumulate, and that, of course, is residues of Roundup and glyphosate in their urine and bloodstream. But just as important, they can have the highest rates of mercury, plastics, uh, you know, other bizarre uh, flavoring chemicals that have gotten into the water systems and the like. And so these uh, these are kind of the the basic tenets that I go to is eat low on that food chain. So if you're going to eat fish, go small. Eat something like a sardine or a, a small white fish like uh, a, um, a trout, a stream-caught trout, or maybe uh, a wild-caught tilapia or something like this. So the small white fish, uh, cod, sea bass, all of these guys are kind of going to be cleaner than your typical salmon and tuna, which carry those high toxin loads. And so you can push further and just be like, well, why don't we all eat the very bottom of the food chain? What would that look like? And it would just all look like the, that we eat fruits and vegetables all the time. And I think that that's been done very successfully in history. Recently, we've damned carbohydrates just as we've damned uh, things like you know gluten. And then we go on to say, you know, well, it's actually you know lecithins and in, in, or the or the lectins in the in the legumes that are causing the problem. Or the gluten in the in the wheat, only to find out that of course all of those are not the root of the cause of the problem. Because if if lentils were our problem, we would have had you know massive levels of toxicity in our food and collapse of human health thousands of years ago when lentils came into vogue. And so then those uh, those staple foods, the rice story, you know, the big flap around rice. There's so much arsenic; it must be what's causing all the disease. Well, no, arsenic's a normal part of, of soil structure. And so when you flood a rice field, there's going to be a lot of arsenic that seeps up out of that, that soil system. And it's going to poison the rice all the way back to the, the oldest of times, really. And so I think rice has always carried arsenic in it. And there's been no evidence that that's had any long standing damage on us. It's not until we start adding these artificial chemicals like glyphosate and Roundup that we really start to compound the problems of gluten and beyond. Can the consumer take control of this bus, which seemingly is running off the rails at the present time? It just seems the consumer has the right to choose what they eat and from where. And I know that the, the documentary you've done, as I said to you before we started recording, The Farmer's Footprint, is just the most beautiful, beautifully shot, beautifully made, compelling story of this, as we call it, regenerative farming. Is it in the hands of the consumer to seek out people who are doing the right thing by the soils and then support them? It's so in the consumer's hand. And I think, you know, I, in, in the process of, you know, telling these dismal stories about Monsanto and Bayer and pharmaceutical companies, I want to, you know, point out that we created that as well. And so as consumers, 
we outsourced our food production. We got lazy. Uh, end of 1945, end of World War II, uh, everybody from uh, you know France to France to uh, throughout the UK to the United States, we were growing 40 to 45 percent of our food in our backyard victory gardens, and so you know we really probably won the war really on the back of the ingenuity of of the populace to step up and start growing their own food again because. As of the 1930s, we had already gotten lazy and we weren't doing that. We were relying on farms to do that for us more and more. And so that that revolution and restoration of, of gardening and farming practices in the backyard uh, probably saved us the war on a lot of levels. Certainly, uh, you know, it made it a more resilient uh you know, uh, fighting force that we had. Uh, we trafficked food all over the world for the first time during World War II to feed troops at a scale that had never been seen before. And so, you know, we, we created the problem of, of large farming in the 1930s and 1940s. We grabbed it back uh, out of sheer necessity. And then ever since then, 1950s onward, it's like we're, we couldn't go fast enough to dump enough responsibility for our food production. Now we're growing one-tenth of one percent of uh, our food in our backyard gardens. And so by that outsourcing, by that kind of surrendering of our own participation in the food system, we created the opportunity for mega farms to move in to provide a solution. And so in the same way, it would be just as fast to completely cripple all chemical companies virtually overnight if we all just start growing plants in our homes, around our sidewalks, in our cityscapes, in our backyards, if we just start growing garden everywhere, we are going to have these vast bounties of food that can, you know, prevent and offset disease patterns in our population and get us back to a much more holistic and uh, nurturing relationship uh, with nature herself. You know, it's really interesting, Zach. What I got really attracted to the farmer's footprint was watching, I think what's really compelling about not just the statistics, the science behind what you're talking about, but you're a guy that's seeing what others aren't seeing and you're hearing what others aren't hearing. Because one of the, my my illustration of that is one of the insights or observations you made of farmers was why, why they till and why they spray. And one of the comments from the documentary, a lady said, we don't have much in common anymore with other farmers around us, it kind of gets to you. And it's so true is that when I speak to locals around us who are all on this path that they've all done and so did their dad, so did their granddad, so did their great-granddad. But what you heard was the the, the reason they till is because they get bored. Looking at a paddock where nothing's been done, they get guilty or bored or they will spray because that's kind of what you do. We've always done that. Those observations are so interesting and so true. And even here in Australia, I I actually hear it from Broadacre to the small guys. That observation is so interesting to me that you don't hear it talked about. And it just seems that there must be a way to support these farmers, to give them the patience that there is a bigger picture and that we as consumers are with them on the journey. Where, what are you finding now as you started putting this into the marketplace? What changes are you seeing? I think that the changes are happening on a lot of levels, but directly around what you're talking about there, which is really a culture as much as an education system, right? And so um, the culture of not spraying or not tilling is 
is so foreign now because we're two full generations into this, you know, kind of intensive chemical farming approach throughout Western nations. And so for that reason, most of your farmers right now don't have a memory of how to farm without the chemicals in their toolbox. I would argue the same thing with medical doctors. You know, we're, we're a few generations away from, you know, the belief system that that food was our medicine and that we could really go after that. And we used lifestyles to change disease patterns in the 1800s and long before that. And so uh, we had a long tradition of that. And then we suddenly got lazy as doctors and we said, well, it takes so much time to A, figure out what the heck a healthy diet and exercise regimen is. And B, neither me or my patients really actually eat healthy all the time or really exercise all the time. So I guess we'll just be hopeless about that. And so they throw up their hands and like, well, the toolbox we're given, even though we know that lifestyle could help this, uh, my toolbox contains the following 280 drugs. And so now you you go to that physician's office and you're not going to see any anything addressed in this more holistic manner. And so that same thing is happening to the farmers. Uh, the farmers that are bailing out of that chemical modality uh, are finding themselves quite lonely. Uh, this is definitely one of the highest rates of suicide in the United States or among farmers. And uh, it's just a, a dense loneliness and a sense of hopelessness and helplessness and a sense that they know they're hurting their land. You can imagine a kid who's a fourth generation, fifth generation farmer and realizing that over the course of transitioning their father and grandfather's farm to this new cutting edge technology of Roundup and Roundup Ready crops and all this, to 20 years later find out that they completely doomed the farm by buying into these marketing stories of the chemical companies is devastating. It's just is such an intense heartbreak, an intense sense of uh, you know, lack of discernment, an intense sense of guilt and fear around all of that. And so what you're talking about when you see, you know, farmer's footprint or you talk to your neighbors, you're talking to people that are having to now overcome a couple of generations of practices and education and, and witnessed, you know, you know, response to these chemicals. And they have to now reorganize themselves around this new philosophy that cleaning uh, up the farm is critical to their survival as a farmer. Um, as long as we keep differentiating away from Russia and and the South American companies and all of this that uh, provide so much of our food chain, if we don't get intimidated by that and come right back at them saying, yeah, I might buy your product sometimes, but the reality is I, I tend to grow healthier and more tasty food in my backyard garden. I'm going to make that my center point. If you can't do a farm, if you can't do a large scale garden or you're not a farmer, then something as simple as some, some container uh, gardening outside, a, a couple of large containers with tomatoes and basil plants and some pea plants and, uh, and the like will get you an enormous amount of contributions to your dinner plate over a few months' time. And that every time you put something on your plate from your garden, you're creating health that could never come from a grocery store. Grocery stores, because of the way they operate, bringing in food from all over the world, can't actually serve you fresh, healthy, new food because they don't actually have it. That All of their... Uh, produce was largely picked unripe and then slowly ripened under ethylene gas infusion into the trucks that they're carried to to your grocery store in. So uh, we have these artificial systems of, of food delivery that go all the way to the final delivery to the grocery store. Zach, can I just ask you one final question? And it's something 
that I heard you talk about, and it was a profound night in the ICU. And it was a night where you and your team brought three people who had died, you brought them back to life. And you said what was profound to you is the first thing they said, all three of them, was the same thing. Can you just share, to finish up, share that story with us and how that story has impacted your own view of now, the past, and what the future looks like for us? Yeah, um, that wasn't the first time I had seen resuscitations happen, but it was the first time I had seen that that rate of success. You, most of our patients that we try to resuscitate just simply never come back. And so to see three come back over the course of a 24-hour shift was was really a unique and once-in-a-lifetime experience for me. And then to, to go ahead and hear their accounts of what had happened, what had transpired in those minutes while their heart had stopped and we were pounding them with medications and doing chest compressions and getting and getting them on a ventilator to breathe for them and all this invasive stuff. On on my side of the equation, that looks like nothing short of you know a warfare operation. Like you are calling, everybody's screaming at each other. There's just chaos going on in the in the room. And on their side, they go into this utter state of peace. And the very first thing that they all say in coming back into the ICU environment is they're resuscitated. Is why did you bring me back? And then the second thing they said, which was the one that just completely floored me, by the time I heard it for the third time that day, I was like, there's something to this thing. And that, that statement was that I felt, I felt fully accepted for the first time in my life. And I think we've all seen movies about, you know, oh, you go into the white light and you, you experience true love or complete love. And I had heard those just like everybody else, but I had never imagined that that love might feel like that, that life, love at the deepest level of, of re-entering, you know, integration back into the greater energies and, and foundations of the universe as you, you exit that physical body and, and merge back into the energetic matrix of the universe. The first thing you experience is I am completely accepted so interesting. I, I think it just has really informed me as to think, how do we define love? And if you ask a bunch of people, what is love? You, you don't come up with a very coherent definition. We have like this in, intrinsic intuitive sense of what that word means, but the acting out of that word and the receipt of that word, uh, the receipt of, of the action of love, what does that look like? Well, that that's actually quite difficult. And I think by and large, we're not very good at receiving love from one another because ultimately, what is it? And in these minutes, you know, in the ICU, suddenly realizing is love simply starting at that massive point of recognition and visibility of I see you and I accept you for everything you are. I accept your path. I accept the pitfalls, the mistakes, the, the, the horrors, the pain that you've inflicted on the planet or other people or the heartbreaks you've experienced from other people. Um, I see all of that and I accept you fully. That's the beginning of love in the end. And uh, it's a profound message to all of us is uh, how do you want to change the world today or how are you going to change it tomorrow? You're going to start to look at people around you and stop making the snap judgments that we all tend to do and simply just start saying, hello, I'm right here. I accept you for who I see of you. Tell me more. I want to know more of you so I can accept all of you. 
And so that I can experience that and then turn, I can tell you who I am and, and why I think I might be here and tell you some of the, the hardships and heartbreaks and, and joys that I've had over my lifetime. And in sharing that, perhaps we'll see ourselves more clearly and love will flow out of that knowingness, out of that sense of complete acceptance. Just to wrap this up and tie a few things together here, you just mentioned the word change the world. And I was sent a note from a listener who is a farmer. And he said, had you seen the philosophy of the seventh generation, that Black Elk, who was a famous medicine man and holy man for the Lakota Sioux, and he talked about the seventh generation in that here right now, we are the result of the seven generations before us. And it's our obligation to set up the world for seven generations into the future. And when I started looking at that, it really changed my view of how we were the custodians of our little block of land and our soil. And we are completely on board with everything you are talking about now, today on the show and in your documentary. I guess just to finish this up, Zach, when you think about changing the world and you think about the seventh generation into the future, what action would you ask somebody very clearly, very succinctly, what action would you ask someone to do today to join in this movement? The action that we have to all take now is connection, ultimately, in a single word. You need to connect to other people. You need to connect to the soil on which you walk again. You need to take off your shoes. You need to walk in the grass. You need to touch the soil. You need to connect to the food you put in your mouth. You need to connect to the source of that food. You need to either be the farmer or know the farmer. You need to connect to the children around you. You need to connect to the elders that would bring such wisdom to you around. And so we are at perhaps you know the most extraordinary moment in that we have more than 7 billion people on the planet and yet, never before have we been so disconnected. Uh, the Iroquois people that you know came up with that seventh generation philosophy lived this intrinsic tribal state, not only connected at this familial level with their entire you know tribe of humans around them, but with the bison that roamed the plains or the the birds that would fly through the air there was this deep connection to understand that the seventh generation uh, would be an expression or an outspringing of this cooperative movement towards nurture, nature, life, and ultimately regeneration, where there's more intelligence and more experience with each passing generation. And with good communication, each, each generation has the opportunity for more knowledge and more wisdom, more deep experience, more understanding of experience. And so they saw that pattern that, you know, they were really mandated that we would make each generation stronger. And so here we are separated by cell phones and computer screens and the like. But we can reimagine a communication network. We can reimagine uh, IT software platforms that connect humans at a deeper level rather than putting up, you know, false, you know, dating profiles or or fake, you know, information or misleading information on our LinkedIn pages or uh, the websites that we build. You know, this all of this, you know, kind of falsitude that we've currently live in around in the social media universe. We could create authenticity in in those same software 
you know, technologies, we could create the opportunity for authentic engagement and uh, intellectual development in a completely different educational system that's not taught within walls, but within the, the planet itself. Uh, what if each of us, you know, spent our time uh, steeped in an augmented reality and where the, the, the blackboard uh, of that education was a field of wildflowers. And on that field of wildflowers, you watch in your augmented reality space a lecture on the biology of water uh, cycles or carbon cycles, and you're feeling it under your feet at the same time that you're experiencing the information. You're taking it in on this multi-level effect and you're being compelled to share a meal in that field with your classmates at the end of that experience so that you might taste and, and fully integrate the results of the lecture into your body uh, to do it. And so, you know, I, I don't want to damn anything that we've done. I think everything that we have in the technology space and the product development space has the opportunity to be a springboard mm. into to an integrated universe of communication, connectivity, uh, with all of mankind, finally to, to erode and break down those boundaries that we call nationalism or racism or socialism or, you know, all of these, you know, bizarre political matrices that we put out there. We could dissolve all of those uh, through the technologies that we develop as much as through our reconnection to simple nature. And so it's not about being, you know, a, you know, wanting to kill all the technocrats. It's about wanting to embrace them to look beyond the programming they've been taught and to find out how does a quantum computer within a human cell function? What are the quantum decisions being made in the walls of a bacteria as it produces life around it? What does that matrix look like? What is the program that's running in the quantum state of biology and life around us? And how do we start to design software and products within that matrix. And so that's that's my compelling message to all of you is please connect. Do something right now to connect. If it's just like reach out for a family member or a neighbor or a coworker right now, um, touch somebody's hand, give somebody a hug. And if you've seen my websites and everything else, I'm fanatical about hugging. It's, it's a <laughs> lost art and, and we're not touching each other. We're not wrapping each other up in a message of, I accept you so much that I'm going to press my body to merge my energy field with you so that we could swap knowledge and information in a nonverbal state of energy exchange. And I would, I would protect your space with my arms wrapped around you. And I would make myself vulnerable to this exchange and that hug. It's a profound opportunity. And so if you're not getting seven hugs a day, change your life around. Uh, re-engage a different working environment, a different social environment where hugs are become a part of your daily life, that's going to be the symptom or side effect of you finding an intention and lifestyle for connectivity. I don't think we've had such a compelling close to show ever, Robo. It's not bad. <laughs> I could have done better, but you know. I, I, yeah, I, I, you want a hug, you want a hug, don't I, you? I, I'm having a hug right now. <laughs> Zach, I can't thank you enough for giving us your time. I can only imagine the schedule that you have going on, not just in the work you do, but in the thinking you do. 
to be so generous with your time to share on our little show, mate. Thank you so much. Where You mentioned your website, the work you do. Where do you send people, mate? Yeah, my education stuff is just by my name there, Zach Bush, Z-A-C-H-B-U-S-H-M-D, ZachBushMD.com. Uh, the science around the soil and the, and the products that come out of the soil, um, that's at Restore. R-E-S-T-O-R-E, the number four, life.com, restoreforlife.com. The Farmer's Footprint, which is our call to action for you to join uh, our social and economic revolution for farming to move beyond organic and finally embrace this regenerative possibility where we actually build more soil, give back to Mother Earth more than we take in an increasing abundance that she will provide for us in that cooperative relationship. That's Farmer's Footprint farmersfootprint.us US. The documentary is beautiful. I've watched it a number of times. It's had a profound impact on our little family and um, uh, honestly, Zach, I know a lot of people say it to you but I could honestly talk to you for three hours on this and still not get to the end of my questions but you've been very generous. Thank you so much, mate. Appreciate your time. Thank you to the audience for your attention and the ripples that you're already creating just by listening to this and absorbing that information. Uh, the space between my words will create your action. And I just appreciate all of you being a part of this community. The Mojo Radio Show. I know this is a tenuous link, but first of all, great interview. And second of all, sp- talking about smart people on this show, that interview when we were recording it, took me back to uh, our interview with Dr. Charlie Teo a couple of Rocktobers back. Just really clever, passionate people. It just makes you realise that as much as we talk about passion on this show, when you you talk to people like that, you realise that it's the passion in their belly to get that information out to people or to do the right thing that probably makes them as smart as they are. It's it's inspiring. Yeah, I don't know if it's the passion that I draw a parallel to. I think it's actually their purpose. I mean, Dr. Zach Bush has got a purpose way beyond being a medical practitioner and seeing clients and customers. Mm. Charlie Teo has got a purpose way beyond just flying around the world and saving lives. He's got a much bigger picture. And for Charlie, because, you know, there's there's that whole thing that once once you earn 75 grand a year, then after that, the amount of money does not improve the happiness within your life. So with these guys who are medically trained, who are making a lot of money, once you get past a certain point, the money doesn't bring you any fulfilment. And it's been science. This is 75 grand, I think, is the cutoff. And after that, you make more money. It doesn't really improve your fulfilment or happiness in life. However, what does is your achieving of a purpose. So when you say Charlie Teo, one of the world's great brain surgeons, He's got a much bigger purpose than just being a, a medical doctor itself, doing the operations. And certainly Zach Bush, when you hear him talk, you watch the videos, the documentary coming out called Farmer's Footprint, he's got a much bigger purpose than being able to be out there promoting his own brand and putting people through his clinic. And I think that if you get that right, I think that's what fuels the passion that then comes through in the interviews inspires a community around him and if enough people support him then maybe he can achieve his purpose it's just uh he's a cool guy man i could have talked to that guy for three hours and not run out of questions no i could have listened to him for three hours absolutely i gotta say though um <clears throat> what was that number you quoted Seventy-five thousand a year yep i'm a long way short of happiness <laughs> 
75 bucks. 75, 75 bucks a bucks. week. God, it's right. nailed. <laughs> There's two cards in Dosecchi. Hello, our friends. A Dosecchi and a packet of Mission Corn Chips. Sweet. Yeah, and my footy registration fees. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. All right. Now, take us out. I'm, you, you, you would have to say this has been... Uh, it has been an interesting show where we are combining medicine, household, wellness, soil, degradation. So it's kind of got a farming bent to it. Would you, would you permit me to to go country to close us? Well, I don't think you need to ask me. I think you need to check in with Lola. She's been driving the bus when it comes to playout songs the last few weeks. So Lola, here's the challenge. Lola, please pay us a playout song that combines our world of rock and roll from the halcyon days of Triple M with a country feel, what have you got? How's this one? It's headed down to Knoxville with a weekly load. You can smell a whiskey burning down Copperhead Road. It's probably close to one of my all-time favourite songs, but I, I reckon if you want to go country, we could probably go a little more country. Lola? We've got a contender. So the last option, mm. I went to Rolling Stone magazine, the Bible for rock and roll and all things rock and country, and Indeed. said, what was the number one country song of all time? Lola, can you play JC, I Walk the Line? Oh, really? Because you're mine. I walk the line. So there's your three choices. Copperhead Road, Steve Earl and the Dukes, <laughs> Leonard Skinner, Sweet Home Alabama, and I Walk the Line, Johnny Cash, the king of country. Producer's choice, what uh, are we close with? Can't believe I'm saying this, but when I heard uh, when I heard Lola play the, the little JC grab before, I think we've got to go there. Oh, really? Yeah. All right, we're out. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Because you're mine, I walk the line. I find it very, very easy to be true. I find myself alone when each day's through. Yes, I'll admit that I'm a fool for you. Because you're mine, I walk the line. As sure as night is dark and day is light, I keep you on my mind both day and night And happiness I've known proves that it's right Because you're mine, I walk the line You've got a way to keep me on your side you give me cause for love that I can't hide For you I know I'd even try to turn the tide Because you're mine, I walk the line I keep 
heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine I walk the line The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.